Um, this week was National Science Week, and I'm sure you all noticed and participated in many, many scientific events, or that none of you did. Uh, but anyway, this year, the theme for National Science Week was future world, or future Earth. And I was so excited, because the theme was future Earth, and I was preaching on Revelation, and I was like, what could be more preordained than that? Uh, but it turns out that Revelation 4, which is the passage that was read for us today, is not about the future. Um, it's about what's happening right now. Thanks a lot, National Science Week. It's confusing, though, because it's about heaven. And there's a lot of bright, sparkling things and weird creatures that you might not encounter in everyday life. Um, including people wearing all white with some flaming torches, which unless you've been in Charlottesville in the last couple of weeks, you probably haven't seen. Um, and as a side note, although they have all wearing all white and do have flaming torches, they have very different agendas to the people in uh, Charlottesville. Uh, so what's the deal with all of this? As Australians, most of us are biased by Western philosophy and literature, and we have an idea that Earth is here and heaven is a long way out there in both time and space. It's in the future and it's a long way away from us. Uh, but that's not how the Bible paints it. In the Bible, heaven is, uh, is here with us now. There's no gulf between us and it. It's just another reality that's present with us. We can't see it, but that doesn't mean it's not here. Uh, there's no separation. Uh, but just because we can't see it doesn't mean there's a separation um, and doesn't mean it's not true. This is a supernatural reality that exists in tandem with the earth that we inhabit. So when Ephesians 2 tells us that we have been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places, and we're like, what? I'm sitting in a very uncomfortable pew in Darling Point, uh, not in the heavenly places. It's no less true that we are seated with Christ even though we cannot physically see or experience that. Uh, we know it's true in a supernatural reality, one that is present with us here now. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, who's this crazy preacher lady? She started in about supernatural realities, and we're like three minutes into this sermon. That was a sharp left turn from National Science Week. Um, and in some ways, the, stories of, the story of Christianity is really totally crazy. It's a religion of miracles, of angels, and of divine intervention. It's all about things that are scientifically impossible. So before we begin exploring this passage, uh, because, to be honest, the whole thing's going to sound bananas, I think it's worth exploring how any thinking person could believe it to be true. There is a reality that is our physical universe, and the physical universe was created by God. It follows the laws of physics, which God gave to us because he loves us. But inherently to believe in God is to believe in something beyond the scientific laws of this universe. Inherently to believe in religion is to believe in something beyond the scientific world. Not that science isn't true, but rather to believe in that there is something more as well. Which is an excellent thing. Because I find there are world, uh, questions in this world that science can't answer dope as National Science Week is. Questions about meaning and purpose in life, about how we think about evil and what happens after death. Today's passage opens with an invitation to look. John, the writer of Revelation, is invited to see into heaven, and by extension, us, his readers, are invited to see too. This invitation is to see as God sees, 
to look into a reality that God has revealed to us, an invitation to look beyond the natural world into the supernatural. And in doing so, this passage shows us insights into two questions in particular. How can we understand suffering in our world? And what does it mean to be human? Uh, There are three main images we are going to look at from Revelation 4. The majestic throne room, the glassy sea, and the creatures and the people praising God. The description that's given to us in Revelation 4 is pretty spectacular and pretty weird. And we have to remember that this letter, Revelation, was written in a very specific genre. The readers of the original text in the first century would have been like, oh yeah, stones of jasper, of course they get it, God is holy. Uh, But as a modern audience, we have to work a little bit harder to understand it. Uh, But I think that even without looking too far or doing too much research, there is some stuff that us as 21st century Australians can understand at 6pm on a Sunday night. One is that this is a spectacular image. John is invited into heaven and there is bright images and voices like trumpets and elders with crowns and it's supposed to make you go like, wow. Uh, Like, you know when you go to the theatre and before the play starts you're just looking at the empty set um, and you kind of get a sense for what this play is going to be about just by looking at, um, you know, what's on the stage there. Here John sets up some imagery for us of what's going on. It's bright, it's loud, there's flashes of lightning. There are sparkling stones and a magnificent throne. So I invite you to look at this like a playset with me. It'll be a poor image of what the text actually says, but it might help us to illuminate some of the meaning of the passage. Imagine a throne in the middle, surrounded by brightly flashing stones. Hear the trumpets playing and the thunder and the lightning which illuminates the throne. And we might be tempted to think, ooh, fancy. Uh, But I think it's more than that. It's standing in the presence of a holy God. This is the natural response to creation, to who God is in his majesty. So there's this stage set, and it's awesome. And now add in your mind's eye some people. They're wearing white. They're sitting on thrones. They have golden crowns. And it's a specific number of people, 24. We learned, if you were here last week, about how numbers in Revelation always always mean something. In this case, we have 24, which is two lots of 12. And smart people who've done research reckon this means 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles, which represents the fullness of the Israelite people, God's people of the Old Covenant, as well as the 12 apostles who represent us, God's people of the New Covenant which is important because it means that the people of the New Covenant are drawn from every nation and tongue, as well as the fact that the 12 tribes of Israel, of course, were Middle East in origin. So this is not an image of white supremacy. The white robes on the people are a symbol of spiritual purity. So these people are in God's throne room. But this is a holy God, uh, the God in whose presence we can't stand. We know from the rest of Scripture that God's holiness is an all-consuming fire. If you look at verse 2, John tells us that he sees one seated on the throne, and yet he can only describe the brilliance of the light. That's how majestic and holy God is. We know as sinful humans we're not worthy to be in God's throne room, that we only have access through the life and death of Jesus, that the only way that these people can be present in this room at all is because, of, because Jesus' death allows them to be. When he dies, he reverses the effect of human sin, It causes a separation between people and God and stops us being able to be present with God. 
What's so encouraging about this is, remember, it's not a future earth we're looking at. We have access to be with God now. In Ephesians 2, which describes how humans can be seated with Christ in the heavenly places, it reminds us that we were once dead in our sins. But now, because of great God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ and seated us now with him in the heavenly places. The 24 people in the throne room are symbolic for all people who have been made right with God in Christ, either by trusting in his promise before Jesus came, uh, that Jesus would come, or, lean, and, or leaning into God's saving grace through Christ's work if they lived after him. And just because we can't see it, it no less means that we are seated with God now in the heavenly places, people who have direct access to the Father through the Son. So we have a brilliant throne room. We have a majestic throne. God is seated on the throne, but he's so holy and majestic, he can only be described as the most brilliant of light. We have 24 people gathered around the throne who represent humanity in relationship with God. And now we're going to add in verse 6. In front of the throne, there is a sea of glass. Uh, One of the big reasons we know this passage is about now and not the future is because in Revelation 21, the future heavens and future earth are described and there is no longer any sea. This is important because in Jewish theology, the sea is a metaphor for chaos and evil. In Revelation 21.1, we're told there is no longer any sea. It's not because there's no more surfing in heaven. It's because there's no more suffering in heaven. Revelation 21 is one of the most stunning passages about the Christian hope, uh, what it's grounded in. When Jesus returns and the new creation comes, there will no longer be any evil or pain or suffering. God will be with his people and there will no more be death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is the future earth. But we're not in the future earth. We're in Revelation 4. We are in this age between Jesus' death, uh, resurrection and ascension and when he returns. So what's with the picture of the sea? The glassy sea helps us to understand what it is to live with evil in the world when we know God is in control. Because the presence of evil is so apparent and pervasive in our world, in big events and in our lives. I teach at a girls' school, so our standard line for describing how we know the world is broken is that there's everything in this world from ISIS to period pain, from the big things that cause massive um, devastation in our world to the everyday uncomfortableness um, of our bodies not working as they should. As our humans, we know our world is broken in a uh, very real way. Even evil is present and affects our lives. And yet the hope and truth of Revelation 4 is that evil is present in the world. The sea is there, but it's contained in God's sovereign control. This is not a chaotic sea. This is not a sea of fear. This is no 12-meter swell. This sea is glassy. In Mark 4, the disciples are out on a small boat in the Sea of Galilee and a storm whips up. The sea and the wind and the rain are out of control and they think they will drown. But they wake Jesus up and with a word, he calms the sea, the wind and the waves. All is quiet. All is still. The water doesn't disappear, but the fear of it does. In the world we live in, It's hard to see God's sovereign control because we see ISIS, we see white supremacy, we hear stories of children trafficked, we feel the pain and 
of loss and injustice in our own lives. It's hard to trust that God is in total control of these events when life is so chaotic and painful. But that is precisely why God has invited us into his throne room, to see his power and his control. God doesn't ask us to be naive or blasé about evil in the world, but he does ask us to trust him that he has it in hand and to work with him against it. So, holy God in the middle of the throne room, we have people there who are pure and able to be in God's presence because of his saving grace in Jesus, a glassy sea that, God, that shows God's defeat of evil, and now we add some weird-ass creatures to join the mix. Looking in verse 8, they have six wings and a hell of a lot of eyes. Like most of Revelation, this is not an image for us to work out in terms of its physical practicality, but to stir our imagination to the reality that God is opening our eyes to. The point is not what the creatures look like so much as what they represent. The created order praising its creator. Looking in verse 8, the creatures adore God by praising his holiness, his eternity, his powerfulness. They state over and over again what God is like. In verses 10 and 11, the people are worshipping God too. But there's a really significant difference between the way the people worship and the way the creatures praise God. The creatures praise God by stating who he is as they chant adoring praise. The people worship God because of what he has done. You are worthy, our Lord and God, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Which reveals something of what it means to be human. To be human is to be made to worship God, but to worship God in response to who he is and what he has done. This is not a senseless act or drawn out purely by God's holiness. This is an act of cognition based on what God has done for us, which in itself is an act of God's grace for us because a right response to God's holiness is to worship him. And creation does that because inherently adoring God is what it was made to do. But God gives us a choice whether we will worship him or not. In Revelation 4, we see humanity enacting this choice, saying yes, we will worship God because of what he has done. In this verse, the people are honouring their God as the creator, the good creator of all things, which brings us full circle back to National Science Week because the study of science can lead us to worship our good creator, uh, the God who made the universe out of nothing, the God who knits strings into quarks and quarks into subatomic particles, into atoms, into molecules, into cells, into systems, into people. The God who knows our DNA by its base code pairs. The God who scatters light into rainbows and sunsets. Who causes gravity to, act, gravity to act and the bonds of atoms to release energy. That creator God is the one we worship, based on the evidence of who he is. And indeed, God's creative power is but one reason we worship him. We worship him as our saviour. We worship him as our redeemer. The God who, by his grace, calls us into his presence by Jesus' saving work, despite who we are and who we have been. So Revelation 4, there's this throne room. God, in his brilliant majesty, sits on the throne in brilliant light. He's surrounded by people who can only be there by his grace. There is a sea, but it's calm. There are creatures adoring him because of his eternal qualities and the people who worship him because of who he is and what he has done. 
For the original readers of Revelation, this throne room would be a familiar scene because there are parallels here between Caesar's throne room, which was the central government of the day. The church at the time was under persecution from that government. And I think what they were supposed to see here is that whilst it looks like Caesar is in control, actually he's not. Um, God's saying, you think Caesar has power, I'll show you real power. It's like, you know when you're overseas and you go to the beach and there's a Canadian who's really, really excited to show you their beach? They're like, it's amazing. You're like, oh, beach. You get there and it's like rocks and there's no waves. They're like, look, beach. You're like, dude, I've been to Bondi. Um, Or if you're old enough to remember it, the classic Crocodile Dundee, that's not a knife. This is a knife. God's saying, Caesar's throne room, that's not a throne room. I'll show you a throne room. Uh, The throne rooms and governments and powers of this world are no throne room in comparison to the power and control of God's throne room. And we live our lives knowing that God is in control, nobody else, which gives us the freedom to live and act God's way even when the world implies that we should live differently. It allows us to live lives of hope in the face of what feels like relentless evil, knowing that God is in control of everything that happens. It also allows us to live lives of worship, lived out of response of who, uh, lived in response to who God is and what he has done, not unthinkingly, but rather with great thought, knowing God as our creator, redeemer, and sustainer allows us to live lives that reflect his glory and his worthiness to our world, bringing God our worship with the fullness of who we are, not just with our words or songs, but with our actions and intent, and in doing so, joining with the great heavenly chorus as they proclaim, worthy, worthy, worthy is our Lord, to receive glory and honour and power, for he created all things, and by his word it was created and has its being.